Welcome to the Same 24 Hours podcast. The podcast is currently on more or less hold to accommodate the recordings for the daily community meetup. During this crazy time, I'm having daily meetings online via Zoom where we can all join and see each other on video and there's special guests. And so I thought I would post the replays here on the podcast so those who can't listen live can listen later. So here we go, continuing on with the daily community meetups. If you'd like to join, all you have to do is go to swimbikemom.com forward slash meet, M-E-E-T, swimbikemom.com forward slash meet, and you can join us any day of the week, 12 noon Eastern during the week, and weekends I'm doing 8 p.m. Eastern on Saturday and Sunday. So I hope you all enjoy this episode of the Daily Community Meeting. Hi, and welcome to the Same 24 Hours Podcast. I'm Meredith Atwood, author of the book, The Year of No Nonsense. I'm a former attorney turned writer, speaker, and Ironman triathlete. Although right now, all I really like to do is lift weights. We all have the same 24 hours, but it's what we do in those hours that leads to our greatest health, happiness, and success. It's my goal to crack the code on a life of less nonsense so we can all make the most of our 24 hours. So let's get started. Hmm. Okay. (laughs) We'll start with this reading. There are two things that must be rooted out in human beings, arrogant opinion and mistrust. Arrogant opinion expects that there is nothing further needed, and mistrust assumes that under the torrent of circumstance, there can be no happiness, and that's Epictetus. I have a hard time with that name, and then the rest of it is how often do we begin some project certain we know exactly how it will go? How often do we meet people and think we know exactly who and what they are, and how often are these assumptions proved to be completely and utterly wrong. This is why we must fight our biases and preconceptions because they are a liability. Ask yourself, why haven't I considered? Why is this thing the way it is? Am I part of the problem here or part of the solution? Could I be wrong? Be doubly careful to honor what you do not know and then set that against the knowledge you actually have. Remember, if there's one core teaching at the heart of this philosophy, It's that we're not as smart and as wise as we like to think we are. If we ever do want to become wise, it comes from the questioning and from humility, not as many would like to think from certainty, mistrust, and arrogance. Oh, that's a good one in our political culture. (laughs) We'll just leave it at that. It's a very good one. All right, everyone. So we're going to do a quick meditation just to ground us and allow us to stop for a few moments and then we will get to our special guest today. So if you will, um, except for the person who appears to be running (laughs) or or walking, um, close your eyes and we're just going to take a few moments of gratitude. And if you're comfortable closing your eyes on video, that's fine. If you're not, no pressure. It's all about just finding a quiet space just for a minute, just to take a breath. Because if you're like me, these are few and far between, even at home. So just take a few deep breaths and let out everything that you breathe in. And think about one thing today 
that you are extremely grateful for. And allow yourself to be totally grateful for that one thing. Take another deep breath. When there is beauty within you, when you understand that the great source of satisfaction exists within you, just as you are, then you don't, you don't need to bother with anything else. Very simply, when there is beauty within you, when there is love within you, then love grows up everywhere in your life. When there is giving in you, then giving grows up everywhere in your life. There is no need to manipulate or change anything because there is already something utterly amazing in you, just as you are. I won't say that it's perfect, but I will say there is perfection there. You have in this life so few moments together with the people you love, or a lot of moments together with the people you love right now. <laughs> but for that matter, you have so few moments in general. Maybe you'll see 30 or 40 more seasons and then you're finished. How then do you have time to manipulate anything or worry? It's really more of a question of appreciation. Let's simply appreciate deeply the moments we have together, opening ourselves to them and participating in them. That's enough. Nothing else is needed. So take one more deep breath. Let it out and open your eyes. All right, everyone, thank you for that. Sorry for the text message ding during that, but you know, it's life. <laughs> it's reality. Well, I am so excited that you are all here for the special guest. I have been trying to connect with Samra for a long time on the podcast, and then we she booked the podcast, and I'm like, well, I'm doing these things, and she said, sure, and so, Welcome, Samra. It's good to see thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So good to be here. Thanks. And you me. look beautiful. Oh, <laughs> we I had a discussion you. online. She's like, "Is this a video?" And I'm like, "Yeah, but it's not that kind of video." I'll, I, you know, but I know yeah. I have the same thing every time I do an interview. I'm like, "Is this video? Do I need to like?" Yeah. Do I, I need to like? You know, at least brush my hair. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I always brush my teeth before these things. Like, explain that. That makes yeah, no me sense. too. I, I can't. I can't. I can't. Uh, I can't even drink water before I brush my teeth in the morning. So yeah. Oh, me too. I, I just I like. Just why would that. you swallow that stuff? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, sweet. We're gonna get along. You, know, you know the whole thing about brushing your teeth after breakfast. I just, I just don't get it at all. Like, I mean, you know, I, I would brush my teeth after breakfast, but I have to brush them before breakfast too. <laughs> Thank you. There's a particular person on this exact call that we've had this debate over. And I am so glad that you are on the right side of things. <laughs> this is perfect. <laughs> I know. I try and my kids, you know, they, they think, well, why do we need to brush me? And I'm like, how can you stand yourself? <laughs> I know. i like, how could you eat? How could you drink? How could you, could you breathe? <laughs> like I just, I the first thing I have to do as soon as I get out of bed is brush my teeth. <laughs> yeah. I can't even meditate with, without brushing my teeth. So like I get up, brush my teeth and then I'll get back in the bed to meditate <laughs> because I can't sit there. I'm like, I can't take it. I can't take it. Yeah. Okay. Well, we are not dental hygienists or dentists, so we'll move <laughs> on from that topic, but um, it's so great for you to be here. And I am so excited for you to tell your story. 
Um, I saw a TED talk of yours and have been following you, especially most recently with, with all the stuff you've got going on with the domestic violence and um, the circle that you're doing. And so I think it's really awesome. So I would love if you would just tell your story. <laughs> I know it's a big one. It's a big story, but, and I know a lot of people may not be joining this live, but a lot of people are going to listen. And I think it's such an important story to, to be told. So thank you again for being here and I'll just turn the floor over to you and let you do what you do. Awesome. Uh, well, thank you so much for uh, inviting me. And I'm so glad that we were able to make it happen. And I, and I love this intimate, casual kind of a feel to it. So uh, yeah. this is great. And this is exactly what we need right now. And uh, that's why I started the connection circles that I do. And, uh, and one branch of it is focused on domestic violence, but the other topics are, are also quite broad. And um, so this, this fits right in. Um, as far as my story, I'll start off with the very beginning. I grew up in uh, Abu Dhabi. Uh, I was born in Pakistan, so I'm originally from Pakistan. That's where my parents are from. And um, but I grew up in Abu Dhabi, and I was uh, I grew up in a very small town uh, where everybody knew everyone. And um, there were two schools. I went to one of them. I went to the British one, and there was another Arabic one and another Indian one. So um, I grew up with with you know um, with friends that I had throughout my entire life, throughout my entire childhood. And um, it was a very uh, patriarchal family, patriarchal community, society. And I was the eldest of four girls. So my uh, younger, I had three younger sisters. And um, uh, I, you know, I, all I could hear growing up, especially because I was, uh, I, I grew up quite quite tall and I was already like the tallest among everybody when I was in grade five or six so my my daughters totally understand that um, but um, I always heard things around uh, you know uh, my cousins and my even my parents and my aunts and uncles were always talking about my marriage that yeah Samra is going up really tall she's like the eldest among of four girls we've got to think about her marriage her dowry and 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 I I just would rebel. I, I was a rebel, like since very young age. So I would, I'd like, no, I don't want to get married. I want to go to school. I want to go to Harvard. I want to go to Stanford. I want to do this. I want to change the world. I want to, you know, have all these big dreams. So um, I pushed and I, in my own little ways, I started a girls cricket team in my school when I wasn't allowed to go outside and play cricket with the boys anymore. And then I started a school newspaper and to share all my radical ideas of gender equality. Um, <laughs> I love it. I so love it. I was a bit of an envelope pusher, uh, even at that young of an age. And but little did I know that all that would come to a come to a crashing halt. I was 16 years old. I was doing my math homework in my room one day. I was in grade 11, and my mom came into my room. She put a glass of orange juice on the table. She stroked my hair lovingly, and then she told me you know, Samra, this friend of mine that you've met a few times. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I know that friend. And she's like, well, she has a brother who lives in Canada and, uh, and their family is really interested in you uh, as his wife. And I, my jaw dropped and I'm like, mom. How old were you? I was How 16. Old? 16. And I said to my mom, like, mom, what are you talking about? I'm 16. I'm in grade 11. I want to go to school. I want to get an education. And, and then over the next few weeks, um, the whole picture that was presented to me was that this is the best thing that could happen to me because I could go to school in Canada. And, you know, my mom said, you know, you have all these big dreams. We can't really send you to university somewhere by yourself. 
because um, you're, you're a bird, don't forget that. And no bird from our family has ever gone abroad to study. So if you're with your husband, we won't be worried about you. It won't look bad and, um, and it's a win-win and this is best, best solution, this best thing that could happen. And when everybody around you tells you that this is the best thing for you, what do you do as a 16 year old? Like these are adults who I trusted and these are my parents and these are my aunts and uncles and my cousins and everybody was like, oh, you're, you're so lucky. You, you're the first girl among all of us to get married. And it was like as if it's some kind of big accomplishment that I've just achieved, uh, even though it, it hardly felt like it. But um, uh, so, you know, I, I lost my voice. I lost my identity. Uh, through that process and uh, and a few months later just after my 17th birthday I was sitting in a big grand banquet hall decked up in red and gold beside a man who was 11 years older than me I'd never met him before and he was now my husband and then um, and then a few months after that I arrived in Canada as his wife uh, I became pregnant right away because I had no idea about birth control no one no one talks about it in in our family and um, and I became a mom at the age of 18. And then I was told that, and I hadn't even finished high school. And then I was told I can't go to school because now I'm a wife and I'm a mother and I'm a daughter-in-law. It's my job to stay home and fulfill the, right, uh, the proper duties of being uh, a girl and a woman. And in fact, I was, my mother-in-law would say to me that I should be grateful that I got, the, got to the real purpose of being a woman sooner rather than later and didn't have to go through all that useless education crap. Oh, wow. so, um, yeah. So, and, and, and they were living with us. So his parents, me and him, we were all living in the same house in, in Canada. And, um, and then after that, the next several years, um, were just the, the darkest years of my life. Uh, it, um, he was, he was very, very, um, verbally and emotionally and physically abusive. It started off with a lot of verbal and emotional abuse, um, calling names, bad words, um, constantly hearing, I'm not good enough, you're, you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not this enough, you're not that enough. And whenever I would question him, you know, why do you say all these horrible things to me? Um, uh, he, would, he would respond, it's because you deserve it. And uh, when you hear that on a daily basis, you hear the words, you deserve this, you're useless, you're worthless, like you start believing it. And I started believing that too. I started believing there's something inherently wrong with me, that I'm ugly, that I'm unlovable, that I'm uh, you know, not worthy of kindness and, and love and respect. And it, it became such a dark time that uh, there were times when I even just didn't want to go on. I didn't want to live. And uh, in those moments, it was really uh, looking at my daughter that if something happens to me, then what's, what is her future going to look like? It's probably going to look like this. Uh, so I knew that I had to keep going on for her. So even during those dark days, and they were very, very dark days, I often describe um, those days as living in a box with uh, no light and enough air that you can just uh, breathe and, and just survive barely, but not enough that you can actually breathe freely and thrive. So it's like living in this constant state of suffocation and walking in on eggshells and living with anxiety and just just waking every day and hoping that it would be a dull, uneventful day. That would be a good day. Right. So uh, during, even during those times, though, um, there, was, there was this voice in my head that just never went quiet. And it was this, one day I want to go to school. One day I will go to school. So when I wasn't allowed to go to high school, 
uh, a regular high school to finish all my high school courses, I discovered um, this uh, center called the Independent Learning Center. And uh, it is a place where you can order your books and you can study at home. So when I called them uh, and uh, uh, I asked, and, and the, the guy on the other end said, you know, most people who do, most kids your age who do their high school courses through ILC and not to a regular high school, they're kids who are in prison for some reason. And, uh, and, and that's why they can't go to school. And I, and I said to the person that, yeah, it's kind of the same situation here because that's what my life was like. I wasn't allowed to go out of the house anywhere, make friends, have any independence agency. I wasn't even allowed to go to the back, to my backyard because he didn't want other people to look at me and look at his property. So um, I ended up ordering my courses uh, through ILC. I knew that I had to do whatever I could to um, gain little bits of independence and financial freedom. Uh, there's a heartbreaking scene in my book where um, I, I can't even buy a donut for my daughter and uh, I don't even have a toonie is $2 uh, to buy a donut for my daughter and a kind man offers to pay for it, um, which is, I just I remember feeling so um, helpless and powerless and humiliated at that moment and just knew that I had to do whatever I could to earn little bits and pieces of uh, freedom and independence. So I, I finished, uh, I started studying at home. So I would do all my chores during the day, take care of him and his family. And then I would go into my room at night and I would study. I was given permission to do that because I wasn't going outside. So it took me about five or six years to finish my high school courses. And um, during even during those days, I had no hope that I would ever actually be able to go to university. I like, I just, you know, according to him and his family, you know, these were just my silly little hobbies. Um, so as long as they weren't interfering with my house, household duties, uh, you know, it was okay. So, um, but even during those days, I would stand in front of a mirror with a piece of paper rolled up in my hand, like a fake degree and practice my graduation <laughs> speech that I would one day deliver. Uh, so kept the hope alive in, in different ways. And, um, and then I got into university, but uh, then uh, my husband and his family wouldn't pay my university tuition fee because there was no useless money to waste on my silly little hobbies. Um, and then I couldn't get government funding because they look at household income and his income was uh, above that threshold. So I knew that I had to make money at home. Uh, and uh, I stumbled once upon, uh, stumbled upon this uh, community ad in a grocery store for home babysitting services. And I was like, ah, oh, people can actually make money watching other people's kids. I can do that. I've got two kids on my own. So I started to put ads around the neighborhood and Kijiji and Craigslist and all the online stuff. And I started to build a bit of a clientele and I started a home-based uh, daycare. Uh, and I did that for the next two, three years. And uh, most of my money would be taken away from me to put towards the household expenses, but I would still stash away secretly a little bit on the side every month, just 50 bucks, 200 bucks, 100 bucks. And uh, it took me another few years to save the to $2,500 or so that I needed for my first year tuition fee as a part-time student in university. So I applied again, this time got in and I put my foot down and had a bit of leverage now because I was making money. So I was able to use that, that if you don't allow me to go to university, I'll stop working and they were already used to the additional income. Um, and, um, and so it was finally after nine years of marriage and two children when I was uh, sitting in my first ever lecture at the University of Toronto. And um, it was a magical moment. I got there 15 minutes earlier uh, or before class began. I just sat there with a big goofy smile and tears streaming down <laughs> my face and not, not believing that I was actually in school. 
Um, and then something magical started to happen. Um, people were treating me with kindness and respect and I was getting straight A's and people wanted to be my friend and study with me and hang out with me. And I, you know, I would hear things like, hey, how did you solve that question? You wanna to go to Starbucks tomorrow and study together? It's, and then it's, you know, Tuesdays is half price chicken wings at the student pub. You wanna go have some with us? And uh, this was the first time in my life that I was being treated with so much admiration and respect for exactly the things that I was always ridiculed for. My ambitions, my goals, my dreams, my intelligence, um, you know, just, just who, what made me me. And when I was at school, when I was in university for those few hours, I was not a wife and a mother and a daughter-in-law, I was just Samra. And it felt amazing and it felt liberating. And then I would go home and I would be treated like dirt. I would be assaulted and humiliated and insulted. And by that time, you know, um, I was also physically assaulted um, several times. So I, I just couldn't understand, like, you know, what, what's going on? If I'm this rock star that everybody seems to think right. I am at school, then why am I being treated so badly at home? And, uh, and I started to fight back, which made, which made the assaults worse. And then uh, one day I was walking on campus and I came across this sign, which had a bunch of questions on it. Um, it, it said, uh, do you feel intimidated? Like you've lost your voice, like you can't go on, like you're living in fear. And I answered yes, yes, yes to all of those questions. And it said, come in and make an appointment. We're here to talk. And it was the health and counseling center. So I went in and I booked an appointment and, uh, and uh, a few days later, I was sitting across from my counselor and uh, the floodgates opened and I started to please tell me what's wrong with me. Why do I, uh, what is that secret to being a good wife that keeps eluding me? Why do I always keep messing up? What, what do I need to do better? Maybe if I cook better food or wash better clothes or keep the baby quieter at night or not have opinions, maybe this will get better. And she, she heard me go on for an hour and she's like, it's not your fault. No matter what you do, you do not deserve to be treated this way. No one deserves to be abused. And it's the first time I heard the word abuse and it just opened up my eyes. I'm like, what, what do you mean? There's a word for it. There's like, you, you, there's something, you know, this thing is actually called something. And, and as I started going to counseling regularly, I learned what was happening to me indeed was abuse. It was not my fault. I did deserve better. And also about my rights in this country as a woman, as, as a human being, as a Canadian. And I found out that, you know, there, there is something called child support. I will not lose my children if I left. I would not be deported if I, if I were to walk out of the marriage because those were all the lies that were, that were fed into me by his family that if I left, I would lose my kids because I didn't have an education or a job or I'd be deported because he sponsored me. So all those things um, were all lies to keep me trapped, but I had no way of knowing better. So now I learned um, all these things and, and I also had hope that Maybe it's not going to be all doomsday if I left, um, but I couldn't leave right away because uh, you know family pressures and and cultural pressures and um, and you know I come from a family and community where divorce and the single motherhood is highly highly stigmatized. Uh, so everybody was like, if you leave, if you get divorced, who's going to marry your sisters? Who's going to marry your daughters? Like you, you'd be a source of shame for the family and the community. Uh, so I started fighting back at home, which it just made it so much worse to a point where a few times he was about to kill me. And, uh, 
and that's when I knew that I can't wait anymore. I need to leave. Like, what if one day he goes too far? He was very close to strangling me once. And, and I just, um, I still, um, you know, sometimes I think about that day and just get, you know, shivers run through me because uh, it would have taken another few seconds and I would have been gone. And I knew that I had to leave. So I was in my second year of uh, undergrad uh, university and I picked up my kids. They were nine and three at the time. And I left and I moved to campus housing uh, at University of Toronto. They were, because uh, I didn't have a place to go to and uh, my husband had sold the house from under me and it was a messy, messy situation. I was almost out on the streets, but luckily I was a student at university and they were able to give me an emergency apartment on student housing on campus. Um, so I moved there with my daughters. I had to pack all my stuff in, a, in garbage bags because I didn't even have money to pay movers and, and just move, move, uh, move stuff in my minivan for a few days. And, um, and I, it was a small apartment, uh, tiny two-foot kitchen, um, no AC, shabby, um, ugliest green carpet than you could think of. <laughs> uh, but it was mine. And it was the first time in my life that I felt safe at home. And um, I picked up four or five on-campus jobs uh, while going to school full-time and raising my daughter. Four or five. Did you say four or five? Yeah, I was, I was a TA. I was a, a research assistant. I was working uh, at the office of the dean as a, as a transition worker for first-year students. And I was running night, uh, doing night shifts at the student center, just selling bus tickets and campus tickets uh, or movie tickets to students. And uh, I discovered a, a secret way to make money was to sell homemade food to uh, campus students. And I started selling butter chicken and biryani <laughs> to students oh on campus gosh. and made some money that way uh, to make ends meet and, um, and also made some friends who are still my friends and I always tease them. I know you're my friends because of the food and they're like, yeah, that's how it started, but now we love you. <laughs> so, oh uh, so I just did whatever I could, uh, you know, to make ends meet uh, because going back was not an option. And yeah, there were times when I felt very like really bogged down by all of this and maybe I shouldn't have left, maybe I should go back, but then I would uh, look at my daughters and I would just, you know, think back that no, that's not the life I want for them. And I don't want them to grow up thinking that being abused is okay for whatever reason, especially because they're boys. And, and um, I didn't want them to grow up normalizing it. And, um, right. and, uh, and so I knew, knew that I just needed to keep going one, one step, one day at a time, uh, just focused on what was in front of me. Because if I looked at everything that I had to do, like, get a degree, get a job, create a new life. It was very overwhelming, but I just focused, okay, next step, next assignment, next test, next course, keep going. And then eventually it, it paid off in more ways than I could imagine. When I was in my final year, I graduated as the top student in the entire university. Uh, all three campuses combined, uh, I, I was the winner of over 17 awards and scholarships in that year. Uh, there's one particular uh, award, which is a $17,000 scholarship that goes towards your master's degree. And it's awarded to only one student a year from all three campuses combined at the university. And I was uh, the first mature student to win that in 19, um, since 1921, since it started. I, I won that. Wow. And wow. um, with your four or five jobs, <laughs> yeah, and I don't know, remember it was four or five. And two kids and two court cases. Two uh, <laughs> Um, so when I, when I won that award, uh, for sure, like, you know, the recognition and the money was amazing and I was super grateful. But the biggest thing that, that, that gave me was validation. 
that I was not crazy, that I, my dreams yes. were valid, that all the things that people told me that I couldn't do, they were all lies. <laughs> I did have the right to a better life. I did have the capability. I did have the intelligence. I did have the ability. And, um, and I had the right uh, to pursue my opportunities and dreams and goals. And, and I just wanted to, you know, get up on rooftops and scream that at the top of my lungs. And I knew by then through counseling and reading that this isn't just my story. This is the story of millions and millions of women and girls around the world who continue to suffer in silence. This is the story of millions of people, everybody, every one of us who feels whether regardless of gender, race, culture, religion, who all of us at some point feel that, you know, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough because society conditions us to believe that we have to morph ourselves or fit into a box or hide bits and pieces of ourselves to be accepted and respected and treated with love and kindness. And, and that's absolutely false because, because respect and love is our birthright. And the way we are, we don't need to do anything else. We're enough the way we are. And I, and I just wanted to do something. I couldn't stay quiet. I, I felt like, yeah, I, I had a choice. I could take my awards and my fancy new job and ride off into the sunset and, and just live my life, which would have been perfectly justifiable. But, uh, <laughs> right. but I, just, I just had this hunger, this, this fire in me that I want to do something. I just can't stay quiet. And, I, and it was like bursting at the seams almost. And I, and I didn't know what, um, but I just wanted to do something. So that answer came to me when I was graduating and I was named uh, the top student in economics. Um, and uh, on that graduation ceremony, my um, our award ceremony, uh, my, a, friend, a friend of mine, her mom wrote this blog, um, uh, which was quite well followed. And um, she said, um, I'd, love to, I'd love to interview you. And uh, I'd love for you to, you know, if you would be open to sharing your story. And, and I, Initially, I was like, oh my God, like, no way, like, what will people think? What, you know, will it be a source of shame? It's too traumatic. It's, it's my personal story. People who think I'm, you know, airing my dirty laundry in public, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then my daughter, who was 10, I know, 11 at the time said, mom, if every woman thinks this way, how is it going to change? I think wow. you should so, uh, so I said, okay. And uh, I shared my story. It, the blog went live on my convocation day, June 10th of 2013. So in the morning, I get my degree, which is already a very emotional moment for me. And then I get went, come home and uh, I log into my social media and it is flooded with messages, thousands of messages from women and men all over the world thanking me for breaking the silence, congratulating me, telling me how my story resonated. Like I oh, this is going on with me, or I saw my sister go through this, or this is my mom's story, or this is my story, or, uh, you know, even something unrelated, like I lost my job last year, and I didn't have, you know, I just didn't know what to do with myself, I thought my life is over, but now you've shown me that it's never too late to reinvent yourself, so I'm going to go back to school, like, these are just, you know, people who were connecting with me based on that journey and experience, and I and I just, you know, um, I used to always wonder up until that moment, why did all this happen to me? Why did I go through all that abuse and then come out with, uh, with much more than I ever could have imagined? And I just, just knew that, you know, like there's, there has to be a reason behind it, you know? And that day I found the answer to my why. And I knew that I couldn't stop. And uh, this was seven years ago. And now 
in the past seven years, uh, my work has grown to a level where I speak on a lot of different uh, social justice, mental health, uh, resilience, um, uh, human rights topics uh, all over the world. I speak in front of NGOs and UNICEF and on all these. I speak for um, a lot of schools and universities around, uh, around North America and even internationally now. And, um, and I uh, also do a lot of work with corporations and uh, in front of corporate audiences on resilience and authenticity in workplaces because we don't leave bits and pieces of ourselves at the door when we show up to work and, right. uh, and, and you know our vulnerability is what makes us whole and human. And, um, and I do a lot of work on, on children's issues like mental health and especially the effects of family violence on mental health. So, uh, you know, it's taken, taken a life of its own. And um, I, I've written a book, which, which got published last year in, in March, and it became an instant bestseller in Canada. It's now being turned into a TV series. Uh, oh, wow. Very exciting. Who gets uh, to play you? I don't know yet. <laughs> we're in the process of writing. So we're deciding on a screenwriter right now. Oh, that's so exciting. Uh, that's very exciting. So it's Who do you want to play you? Oh, I can't, I'm not allowed to say that yet. <laughs> oh, you have someone. Do you get that input? Will you I do. I do. Uh, that was actually my thing when I signed the the rights. I'm like, I'm not just going to give away the rights to my story. I, yeah. I, I, I need, I need an in on everything on the process. So yeah, I've got an in on on every little creative piece uh, because I want the story to be authentic and true. Right. I mean, and I wanted to make sure the universality of the story comes forward and it doesn't become culturally, you know, uh, sensationalized. So that was, uh, so that's happening. And I just got named, uh, just a few months ago, I got named as one of the most uh, top te- top hundred most powerful women in Canada, which was, uh, which was personally, like I, I won several awards and things, but this one was especially meaningful because the word powerful to me, you know, uh, for so long in my life, I was made to feel absolutely powerless, uh, and uh, and to now be recognized as, as one of the top hundred most powerful women in the country. That just, um, you know, it, it, it was just, you know, really meaningful to me um, because from going from powerless to, to feeling powerful and to now being able to use my power to empower other people because that's what I truly believe what real power is it's about empowering other people and um and you know no matter what I do the speaking the book the film the uh you know the TED talks and all the stuff the 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 purpose behind it remains the same uh as I as it was when I started when I first shared my story in 2013 it's that it's that purpose of like maybe there's one woman out there there's one person out there who needs to hear what i have to say maybe there's someone out there whose life i can touch uh, through my voice and my words and my story um or my message and uh my biggest gifts have been the messages that i receive every single day from people like every day i wake up to messages on social media from people who reach out to me and tell me how they've been empowered to change their lives and whether it's a man writing to me from Pakistan and saying uh, I'm canceling my teenage daughter's wedding and sending her to school wow. after your story wow. or um, just a few days ago um, uh, three uh, gir- school girls from Kashmir India uh, wrote sent me a handwritten letter their their principal scanned it and sent it to me um, uh, because they read my book and their my book was in their school library and they read it and, and they told me that 
you know, now that we've read your book, we are not going to let anything stand in the way of our dreams. And um, I was in Kenya a couple of years ago doing a speech in front of high school girls there. And I started sharing my story in the third person and saying, you know, there was a little girl just like you who had big dreams. And that's kind of how I walked them through the story. And then I got to the part where she graduates as the top student and they're all clapping. And, mm-hmm. and I said, do you want to meet that girl? And they're now looking at the door thinking someone's going to walk in. <laughs> And I told them that girl is me and oh my God, they just ran to the stage and like threw their arms around me. And, and I have not heard these many I love yous um, in my life that I did in, in, those, in those few minutes. And it just every time I'm, I, I get filled with any doubt, if I'm on the right track, I just think back to that moment and I'm like, yes, I am. Uh, so it, it, it's just been heartwarming. And um, I was in Atlanta um, just a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago before this whole COVID thing happened and, uh, um, and doing a speech for a big national rotary conference there and uh, just met some amazing, wonderful people who are doing some amazing work on, on sex trafficking and other human rights violations. And um, and do, being able to do my keynote there and, and bond with all of them. And it just, it just goes to show um, that no matter where we are, no matter where we come from, no matter what color our skin is, what faith we practice, what gender we identify with, who we choose to love, we're all connected in so many ways. And the power of humanity and love and compassion and empathy that connects us is, is, and is so much bigger you know, that anything that disconnects us, that what unites us is so much more powerful than whatever is supposed to divide us. And, um, and when we operate from that place of shared humanity and experience, everything else, you know, all these so-called differences fade into the background. Um, and that's, that's really my message. You know, we need, we need love to be louder than hate, especially in today's world and today's climate. Um, and that's why we need more and more of us to start speaking up and start sharing and start connecting with each other from that human place and from that authenticity uh, because we, we, we all deserve to be seen and loved and respected for who we are. Yeah, um, yeah. We can all do that for, for ourselves and for each other. So I saw your TED Talk, and then um, I, your, the book um, No Visible Bruises was recommended to me. I haven't read your book yet. I'm going to read it. So um, my book is called A, a Good Wife. A uh, Good Escaping Wife. The life, Escaping the okay. Life. And for shows. It's available um, on Amazon, uh, so it, you know you can on or, or even any online retailer in uh, North. And Kindle too. Do you have audio and Kindle? Yeah, yeah. 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 I don't have audio yet. I'm in. Okay. The, I will be recording it soon because I wanted. I was insisting on recording it in my own voice. Uh, so enjoy uh, that. It's, it's yeah. so fun. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard. I've heard from other authors, but uh, but I will. I will uh, record it soon. But yeah, ebook and um, the actual physical book. Oh, good, because I know like Amazon's poking with, with books like paperbacks. So good that you have it on Kindle. So I'll, I'll actually get it on Kindle. Um, but I was reading in No Visible Bruises, and this kind of goes to the question of people that aren't in the situation that don't understand, well, why don't they, why don't women just leave? Why don't you just leave? Why, don't, why do you stay for nine years? And, and I had highlighted this particular passage, and I'd, I'd love for you to comment on it. Um, they stay in abusive marriages because they understand something. Oh, my candle just shut off. Hold on. It's coming back. Sorry. No problem. It timed out. Okay. They stay in abusive marriages because they understand something that most of us do not. Something from the inside out. Something that seems to defy logic. As dangerous as it is in their homes, it is almost far more dangerous to leave. They stay. They bide their time. They keep their children safe. They balance 
poised on the front lines, hypervigilant and patient, in a constant scan for when they can slip away intact. They do it for as long as they possibly can. And I, I thought that was so, you know, when you, when you look at domestic violence and you, you have that question of why people are staying and then you read something like that, oh, no, they're just trying to do it at the right time. So in your experience, like, what is the right time? I mean, I know that you have to get your stuff together sometimes. You can't just, but you, I mean, you grabbed a trash bag and, and took your five jobs, <laughs> but not everyone's that brave. Like, how, how do people know that they can just leave like how is that tied into your mission because i know it is that's such a great question um Meredith. and you know um when i wrote my book uh i i made a list of the all the things that i like the questions that i wanted to answer and that question was at the top of my list why do women stay because you hear it so much uh well if he was so horrible why didn't you just leave uh leaving is not not a one-time thing leaving is a process and it's a very long drawn out process and and for every woman it looks different and leaving doesn't even happen just one time. It's not linear. There are, there are twists and turns. They're going back and forth. There's on average, a woman would leave seven times before she's finally able to leave. Um, and sometimes never at all. So I am um, my, like, you, you know, yes, I took my garbage bags and five jobs, but that was the sixth time that I tried to leave. Right. There were six, five six. times before when I tried to leave and I was either, I either went back because I just didn't know how to move forward or I was sent back. Uh, by my family. So the first time I left uh, and I was sent back by my parents, the second time I left, my dad died. So I was sent back by my mom. The third time I left, uh, I was, I was just so overwhelmed. I went to a hotel and stayed there for one night. And I'm like, now what, what do I do now? I don't have friends. I don't have family. I don't have any money. I don't have a job. I don't have an education. Um, and I went back. And then another time, you know, I was told by like friends and family that, you know, you should give him another chance because because, you know, he's realized that he was apologizing and he was crying and he was promising to make, make amends and, and change himself and, and do anything that it takes. So, so it's, not, it's not linear. It's, it's every time, but every time you leave and you, you go back, it's, you know, a lot of times women will think that, oh my gosh, maybe I just don't have it in me. Maybe I right. can't have it. And others would say that too, that, oh, he went back again right you know like maybe you should just stay there so people become very judgmental and then you also as a as a victim become judgmental towards yourself and that's what i'm trying to answer with my book as well that it is not a one-time thing it's not a linear process and every time you try even though it didn't succeed at that time you're one step closer so yeah. in in the overall scheme of things you are you are moving towards that final stage and as much as hard as leaving is staying away is harder and, uh, and it's because, you know, it's kind of like that same situation where you take a prisoner out of being out of prison after they've been incarcerated for years and years and put them in the middle of the city at Times Square and say, okay, go live your life. You're free. And that person doesn't even know where to begin. They don't have life skills. They don't have the necessary support system. They don't know, you know, how to get basic things done. It's very overwhelming, very intimidating. And then the shame and stigma that community and society inflicts upon them what do they do? They reoffend, and they go back to what they know best and what's comfortable. And it's the same kind of thing with women who are being abused and they come out of that. And now, like, I didn't know how to, how to open a bank account. I didn't know how to get my car fixed. I didn't even know what networking means. And everybody was like, you have to network to get a job. What, what on earth is that? Um, I was in university. I was 10 years older than everybody else. 
uh, all, you know, in first year in first year uh, class. And yeah, I made some friends and stuff, but like I didn't fit in and I was like, where do I belong? So, um, so, and then when people around you are like, you know, um, well, the devil known is better than the devil unknown. At least he doesn't break your bones and he doesn't, you know, wow. cheat on you. You should go back. Like, and then the shame of the, of the culture and, you know, my own brother-in-law calling me and saying, what shame on you. Uh, you failed at the real purpose of being a woman. What's the point of you winning all these awards and scholarships? Um, so, you know, these are, these are things you hear on, uh, on, on, a, on so many levels and you're conditioned by society to believe that, you know, as a, as a woman, you're incomplete because you're, you're single or you're, you're not a mom or you're not this or you're not that. It just, it is. And then, and then the whole thing about oh, a proper family is a two parent family. And I'm telling you, like, there's, there's no bigger lie than that because my kids um, uh, have, have struggled with trauma because of the family abuse or the violence that they saw, especially my older daughter. And something I say to women all the time, don't stay for the sake of your kids, leave for the sake of your kids. Because even though, yes, right now you may think it's best to give them that two-parent family and that father and everything, but if that parent, if that family is not healthy, if there's not love there, if they're seeing fighting and, and abuse, uh, kids, and even though you're not fighting in front of them, kids feel it, they observe it, they, they internalize it, they are traumatized by it. And, um, and it will lead to a lot of other issues later on. And, uh, you know, when I left my marriage, my kids were nine and three. And then when my older daughter turned 15, 16, she displayed a lot of signs of trauma and mental illness. And it's been a journey to get out of that. And we're doing really well now. And she's, she's a rock star. She's starting to, she started university in September, but it, it was a very tough and very long road uh, to recovery. So um, one thing that I wish I could go back and change is that, you know, leave, leave sooner for their sake. Um, so, but the, I, but the point I'm trying to make is that as a woman, as a victim, like leaving is not, is not a linear thing. It's not a one-time thing. And, um, and, and couple that with the barriers that you face in your, in your cu culture community, or maybe financial barriers, maybe you don't have the right support system. And then your confidence is super low because of the years and years of abuse that chips away at your self-esteem and and a sense of self-worth, um, then you think, well, if, if, if the husband that I think is, you know, who loves me, who says he loves me, and he thinks that uh, uh, I'm not good enough and, um, and, you know, I'm not worthy enough, then maybe others will think that way too. And no one will want to hold my hand and no one will want to talk to me. And, and as human beings, what's our biggest fear? It's isolation. It's rejection. We all want to be loved. We all want to be cared for. That's, we, we are wired for connection. So when we are afraid that we're going to lose that and no one will want to talk to us or be with us, that's, that's really, really scary. Um, so uh, a lot of, a lot, you know, and, and so leaving is actually scarier than staying. And right, because it's, it's the unknown, right? It's mm -hmm. that, it's the unknown that is the, unknown. the most and terrifying. So you're always just trying to be on that balancing act of like, you know, you're not ready to leave. So you're just trying to do whatever it, you could to, to deal with what's going on. And, you know, you're always walking on eggshells. You're living in this, oh gosh, I just wish this was Del Day. I just wish it doesn't, you know, the, sh the other shoe doesn't drop and he doesn't get pissed off at me today. And so you're always hyper vigilant. And that's, you know, that word really rang, rang true to me. And, yeah. and so you, you stay until leaving is scarier than staying. And then you leave when staying becomes scarier than leaving. Yeah. Every woman, that tipping point is different. 
And I think there's such a connection. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I was just, I was going to say when you were talking about the process, you know, you leave once, you leave six times, seven. Um, that reminds me so much of quitting addiction, quitting drinking. I'm four years sober. And like when I talk to people, because I quit drinking December 12th, 2015, that was the last day. And everyone's like, how did you just quit that day? I'm like, I quit a hundred times before that day. That was just the day that stuck. And it was when I had enough, when it was done and I knew it, that I was done. And, and so all of that, that you're saying, it it rings very true to me because yeah. It's very similar because the, the, you know, when you're in trauma, when you're in abuse, you, you do get addicted to the highs and lows. Like it's the chemical reactions in your brain and there's, you know, I could get into the psychology of it, but I won't, but it, it is, it is the same kind of feeling because you, you know, you're, you're uh, at one hand, you know, there's all this drama and the abuse and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? And then, and then the little crumbs of affection that comes to come your way after you latch on. And then the dopamine spike is just so much higher. And you're like, yes, this person loves me. And you feel validated and you feel worthy and you get hooked onto that feeling. And so because abuse, abusive relationships, you know, uh, as much as, uh, you know, um, they show in the movies and the media, it's like, oh, it's all bad. And the guy's trying to kill her and all of that. It's not like that. It's, there's, there's a cycle and there's a lot of good there. So there's like an abusive episode. And then there's a honeymoon period where this person could not be better. And then the tension starts building up and then there's the abusive episode and it's just a cycle. And sometimes that cycle is drawn out over years. Uh, Like, you know, there will be you know, one slap or one abusive episode and for months or years, it would be all great. Or sometimes it's more frequent and it intensifies over time. Uh, So, and it again, and the other thing is it never starts with a slap or a kick. It starts with those little underhanded compliments, those offhand remarks, those little insults and digs at your expense, those little jokes at your expense. It, It starts off that way. So when, you know, um, by, and, and those, those little things are like, are like little hits to you, but then you think, oh, it's, not, it's just one comment. I shouldn't make such a big deal out of it. Um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's okay. He's so wonderful in so many other ways. I'm not going to leave him because of this one stupid thing. All of us say stupid things and you brush it under the rug. And then guess right. what? The next time your tolerance level becomes even higher and then higher. And then, and then you, it's, I, I often describe this as, um, as this frog analogy. If you put a frog in hot boiling water, the frog will jump out and run away. But if you put the frog in cold water and turn the heat up ever so slightly, the frog's body will keep adjusting to the rising temperature of the water and the frog will eventually cook to death without even realizing. Right. So, um, so it's the same thing, you know, the, over time, the insidious progression of abuse, it, it, it raises your, your tolerance level and then you start accepting everything, you know, that, that you would not have accepted on day one. But now right. on, you know, day 1000, it's your norm. It's your new norm. So when right. that finally that slap or kick comes, you think that's your fault too. And you deserve that too. And sometimes that slap or kick never comes. So a lot of women continue to stay in abusive relationships or are psychologically and emotionally abusive, but they're no less damaging. In fact, they're even more damaging uh, sometimes because it, it, is, it takes a toll on, on your entire being. Um, and I was, I was physically abused in my marriage, but the, the things that still haunt me and the things that I still struggle with sometimes is the emotional and psychological. So, Are you good with taking a question? Someone has a question. Yes, absolutely. Okay, absolutely. I'm going to unmute you. All right, go ahead. Hi. Um, oh. so- I have been 
Speak I up said. a little bit, Lorraine. Speaking up a little bit. Um, can you hear me better? Yeah, that's, oh, better. that's better. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, I found myself becoming uh, disassociated from the abuse, both in a physical and uh, sort of psychological way. And would you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, you know, that becomes one of the, one of the coping mechanisms. Um, and um, I remember even in my marriage, there was towards the end of it. I'm like, I just, I don't even care anymore. Like I'm just going to pretend that this doesn't happen and just focus on the good parts because that became my coping mechanism. If I focused on, if I, if I really, you know, thought about the abuse and thought about what ha what's happening to me, I would not have been able to go on. Um, and that disassociation doesn't just stop, uh, you know, when you leave the marriage it, it, or leave the abuse, it comes back later on too. Like there are things that, that came up for me when I was writing my book, which was like seven years or eight years after I'd left my marriage. Um, and, and those, it's those things that came up that, you know, I had blocked it away in some remote corner of my brain. And just because I wasn't ready to deal with the trauma, like, you know, I was, I was raped once during my marriage and I just did not want to deal with that. So I had, I had, you know, put it away and it was the day after my dad died. Um, and, and I didn't want to admit to myself because what had happened, but when I was writing my book and I, and I, it came up at that time and I did put it in the book, it is a scene in the book. And, um, and I, I had such a tough time, the, like I had to go into therapy uh, throughout the process of writing my book because there were so many things that came up that I had completely disconnected myself from and at that time and I when I talked to my therapist like why is my why now like why didn't I deal with it then he said because Samra you didn't have the capability to deal with it then you just weren't in the right place emotionally and psychologically so you know the fact that you disassociated with your, yourself is like that's that's your brain's way and your your emotion your your being's way to deal with that at that time so don't, don't blame yourself for it. And, and that's a coping mechanism and that's absolutely necessary. Even stuff in my childhood that I disassociated with myself from because I didn't want to think that my parents didn't love me or the trauma that they inflicted upon me by pushing me into this marriage. And my father was an abuser. And I, when I was growing up, I almost idolized him because he was, my, he was always you know, encouraging me to believe in my dreams. But he was an abuser to my mom. And, and when I was writing the book, that came up a lot. And I struggled with all the complexities of the emotions that came up for me during that time that well then you know my father was not a good person and um and in fact a lot of the abuse that i tolerated in my marriage was because i had seen that as a child yeah. and i i thought that that was my norm uh, that was normal um so um had i had i not seen that and i had uh, had my father been a, a respectful and loving spouse um i, I probably, you know, that would have been my benchmark for my own marriage. So um, there's, uh, you know, the fact that you disassociated yourself from that is, is very, very normal. And uh, we all do that uh, when we, when we struggle with, uh, or we're inflicted by trauma. Um, so all I'll say is like, now that you've recognized it, um, you know, um, it, see, see what you can do about it. Like what I did was I, I'm, I'm still in therapy and I have no shame in saying that. And I, and I, um, and I probably always will be because I'm such a big proponent of therapy and mental health, but it's, it's, you know, you can recover from it. And the more you recognize it, you can deal with it. You can pick up coping mechanisms and you can draw the boundaries with those people who were in your life, who inflicted that upon you or who remind you of that, the better it is. Um, and, and you just 
you just, you know, um, are able to cope with it in a, in a much healthier way. So I hope that helps. Yeah, that was great, Samra. Do you have time for one more question or do you I have, have a, a lot stop? of time? No, okay, I don't okay, have a stop. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can go um, I, well, I, there's one more question that came to me personally. Um, how did you help your children through this, the trauma? That's a great question. And, and um, I'll share something um, which now my daughter has given permission uh, for me to share. Uh, my daughter, when she was 15 or so, um, I discovered that she was self-harming and she was suicidal. And um, it was a big, big blow to me that, you know, why now? Like you've left you know, it's been six, seven years since we've left the marriage, like what's going on right now? Like, you know, I, I just couldn't understand it. And I, and um, I didn't know how to cope with it. I just didn't know how to, how to support her. And there were times when I would say things like, you know, how, uh, what do you have to complain about? You have such a great life now, you know, we, we, we've gone through our things. And um, I was, I was married when I was your age and, uh, uh, and, uh, you, there are kids in this world who are dying of hunger and etc. And then she said one day to me during one of those arguments, she said, mom, just because you had different problems, just because other people have different problems does not mean that my problems are not valid. And it was a big wake up call kind of a statement for me. And after that, I was like, you know what, she's absolutely right. Like what she's going through is absolutely valid. And, um, and I need to step into her shoes and understand. So I just threw myself into uh, into reading books about child psychology, about uh, childhood trauma. Um, it was the same time when I was writing my book, so my childhood trauma was coming forward as well. So I was able to put myself in her in her shoes, and uh, and uh, and we did a lot of joint uh, therapy together, um, and uh, learned and to communicate and to validate each other and to grow out of that experience together. And the biggest lesson I've learned through that is that, you know, you, it's not your job to, to solve your children's problem. Um, as a parent, we tend to go into problem solving mode right away. We want to protect them. We want to solve their issues. We want to make sure that nothing happens to them, nothing harms them. Uh, we can't do that. Um, it's impossible. Um, but our job uh, is, is not to do that. Like Empathy is not about solving problems. Empathy is about holding space and being there for them and hold their hand and make sure that they're, they don't feel that they're alone and they feel supported and they know that there's a safety net. They know they have someone to catch them if they fall. And um, so I went from that parent who was always in problem solving mode uh, to completely um, uh, doing a full different approach to parenting. And there was one time uh, towards the uh, end of our therapy, group therapy, or we went into a, an eight month group therapy program and um, towards the end of it, there was one time when we were in a session, and this was a this was a group of me and her, and then other other parents and their youth as well who were struggling with uh, with these issues. And she had a panic attack during the session. She got up and she went out of the building, and she went and she went outside and sat in the middle of the street. It was a very quiet street, but a street. And she sat in the middle of the street, and uh, she was obviously quite distressed. She was saying things like, I don't want to live. I don't want to go on your job. Your life would be much better without me. If I wasn't born, you could have left out a lot sooner. Um, it, you know, your, your life has just been a problem because of me and blah, blah, blah. And I, um, and I, could, I could see that she was just having a really hard time. And, uh, and in that moment, uh, you know, instead of uh, what I may have said to her, if this had happened two years before, I may have been like, 
you know, get up, you know, don't, uh, this is so embarrassing. Let's go back inside. We can talk about it when we go home. Like, what are you doing? Why are you creating a scene, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I just like, I, I knew that I had to be there for her in that moment. I couldn't leave her alone. So I sat down with her in the middle of the street and in broad daylight, it was like 4 PM. We're both sitting in the middle of the street and she looks at me and she's like, mom, what are you doing? you're going to sit with me here in your short dress and four inch heels. I said, yes, I will, because I love you and I'm not going to leave you alone. And I can, can I just sit here with you and hold your hand, please? And she said, okay, yeah, I'd like that. And we sat there for maybe five minutes and she broke down crying. She hugged me, sobbed uncontrollably for a couple minutes, got back up and said, okay, mom, let's go back inside. Thank you for not leaving me alone. And we went back in and finished the group session with our hands held under the table. And uh, it, is, it was a very profound moment for both of us because it was in that moment where I knew that my job was not to stand there and solve her problems. My job was to sit there with her and hold her hand as she works through that trauma and she knows that she's not alone. And um, we continue to do that for each other. And that that is the way, you know, to, to help your children. Uh, trauma doesn't go away. You don't move on from trauma. You move on with it. You grow with it. Um, and the more you are connected with your children, the more you can help them through that process. And uh, so this, so I, there was a time a couple of years ago when I thought my daughter wouldn't even finish high school. I had, she dropped out of high school. She was, uh, she got involved with the wrong crowd for a little while. She, uh, she, you know, she just didn't want to go on with her life. Uh, I really thought she would never be able to even finish that. And, and today in September, uh, in a few months, she's going in to be one of the best filmmaking programs in the country in university. And she got into that. And, 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 and when, you know, when I talked to her about it, she often says, yeah, mom, it's, you know, we did it together. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, she's still filled with self-doubt. Yesterday we had a conversation about like, she's like I don't know if I'm going to fit in and all of that. And I, took a gap year and like, you know what? You're going to do fine. You're going to do absolutely fine. Look what you've conquered so far. You're going to be amazing. And that's our job as parents is to just be there for them, lift them up and make sure that they don't feel alone in their process. Yeah, I hope that helps. <laughs> that was great. That was great. Well, I have one more quick question. Mm -hmm. um, just because you, you've encountered so many women and experience and, and just have, have been doing this for so long now, what is the one thing that you like to leave people with? I know you said that this is your purpose to make sure people know that they're not alone, that they can get out. Like what is, I, I, cause I have these nuggets too. When I talk, like what are the, what is the one thing that you want to make sure that every woman who's in a situation where they don't feel safe and they, they want out, but they don't know how to leave. Like what is the one thing that you would say to them? I would say, um, be very, very kind to yourself and be very non-judgmental. To yourself like you are a rock star for even thinking you know about leaving you're a rock star for trying and doing whatever you can even the little steps you're taking by listening to a conversation on youtube or a podcast about this or calling a lawyer and getting just basic free information about what your rights are or um, reaching out to a friend and just saying hey something's off and i don't get it um, reading an article about abuse, like whatever it is you're doing, these are necessary steps towards leaving. And I know in my journey, often I felt that I'm not strong enough to do this, but 
But strength doesn't mean that you don't have weak moments. Courage doesn't mean that you're not afraid. And confidence doesn't mean that you're not filled with self-doubt. You, it, it, this, the, life is about, yes, you, you do feel self-doubt. You are afraid. You have weak moments. And then you get back up and you say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to move forward. I'm going to take one more step. And that's what strength and courage is. So congratulate yourself on that. Be proud of yourself for that. And I know just, just be your own champion. Stand in front of a mirror and give yourself those pep talks. Uh, hold your own hand in the middle of the street and, and be your own best friend. And, and uh, what I'd also say is for others around you, you know, um, even if you may not be going through this yourself, I can guarantee you that you know someone who is. And you may not know yet if they are that, who they are, but there is someone in your circle, in your family, in your workplace, in your community, in your friends who is going through this. There, one in three women in North America will have suffered from intimate partner violence at some point in their lives. One in two women are affected by physical or sexual harassment of some sort. That is half of us. <laughs> You know, and these are and these are almost these are quite underreported stats because we don't take into account uh, psychological and emotional violence, uh, which is often uh, equally, if not more, damaging. So, even if you yourself are not going through this, you know someone who is. So make sure you do whatever you can to create that safe space um, for them to to be able to come to you. And if if you see a woman who keeps going back, you know, be there for them unconditionally. Uh, unconditional non-judgmental support because it's not easy to leave. The worst thing you do, you know you can hear as a woman who's trying to leave is like when people say, "Oh well, you know you went back again." I guess don't you don't have it in you uh, because it's it's not easy. It's really really hard. And um, to do whatever you can to pay it forward, especially right now uh, during the COVID times, domestic violence is on the rise. Isolation is an abuser's best friend. And right now, isolation is being handed to abusers on a silver platter. Right. Women have nowhere to go, no reprieve, because they are probably not going to work uh, or, and they can't you know, see their friends and family due to social distancing. The abuser's not going anywhere. Uh, you're stuck at home with an abuser who is frustrated, who is uh, stressed out, who might be under financial stress. There's a crisis time. And guess who becomes the punching bag? It's the victim. And so right now is an especially dangerous time. I keep reading articles and reports of how um, there are shelters that are full. I, just two nights ago, I, a woman reached out to me on Twitter and she, uh, she was telling me she's called 15 shelters in the area and she just can't find space anywhere. Right. Um, so, and, the, and it's not like, you know, she, a woman can just go and stay with a friend or a family because of social distancing. Now that's not an option either, right? So um, right now is, is an even more important time to be very aware of this and to do whatever you can to offer connection. It might even be just dropping off some homemade food or just reaching out to a friend and talking to them, hey, are you doing okay? Because each time you do that, it humanizes uh, them and it makes them feel, yes, I matter and I'm not alone. Because the worst yes. thing that can happen is a woman is stuck in that situation and she feels that she's absolutely alone and there's no way out. And, right. uh, and, um, and no one should feel that way. And you have a domestic abuse connection circle mm -hmm. on Mondays at 8 p.m. And yeah. you, can you tell us where everyone can follow you? So yeah. yeah. So um, if you go to my website, and I'm going to type it here, it's just my name.com. 
Uh, and uh, on Monday nights at 8 p.m., I've started uh, a domestic abuse connection circle, which is really to talk about different uh, topics underneath domestic abuse, especially with the lens of the COVID crisis right now. So last night was the first one, and I talked about the five uh, reasons why domestic violence is rising uh, during these, uh, the COVID times. Uh, so isolation, financial stress, um, you know, um, sh uh, support systems are at overcapacity, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and then what can we do about it as a community next week? Uh, so next Monday, it's going to be uh, about emotional and psychological abuse. Uh, and then um, and a, the following week, uh, I'm going to bring in a family lawyer to talk about some basic family law knowledge. And I'm going to bring in, bring in um, a child psychologist at some point to talk about the impact on children. But there's different topics and it's very intimate um, and, um, uh, you know, just to connect, like, authentic connection kind of an environment. Um, it's open to anyone. So whether you're going through it, whether you think you're going through it, or you know someone who is, or you just want to learn more about the cause and see how you can help, um, please join in, please spread the word. Um, because right now we need as much of these community grassroots supports as possible. And I'm hoping that, you know, it will just create a safe space for women because right now, you know, we don't have that in person. So um, maybe we can all come together and share ideas of how we can help. Yes. Well, thank you for knowledge so much. Power, for, so I'm just, that's what I'm trying to do. Spread the knowledge. Yes. Yes. And thank you so much for that. I mean, I started reading statistics on domestic abuse recently and I texted my good friend who's a um, prosecutor in the DC area. And I said, Oh no, I think I'm going to have to go back and, and become a prosecutor. Cause I have a law degree that I've abandoned. Oh, <laughs> and wow. I thought, I'm going to have to go back and I'm going to have to be a prosecutor. Cause I, this is, I can't, I can't deal with these yeah. domestic yeah. violence stats and, and the way that it's being ignored and the fact, you know, and so like, yeah. I, I'm really glad that, that you're talking about this. And I think, you know, for those of us that, that can't go back to practicing law at the moment, but can do other things like this is, just sharing your story and my ability to put it out there like this is how we get the word out and so um thank you so much for this and um yeah thanks everyone who joined and and i, I appreciate everything you're doing please uh, please you can find me on social media i'm very very easily searchable uh, uh i'm on instagram twitter facebook linkedin connect with me write to me um if you have any ideas for future topics if there's you know, something that you'd like to contribute. Like I'm, I'm really, really open to all conversations and I'm very approachable. So please reach out. Thank you so much. All right. Well, everyone have a great day. Thanks everybody. Sure. For joining. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the same 24 hours. Remember to rate, review, and share this podcast. It really matters. I appreciate it. See you next time.